karma yoga, karma in its effect on character. The word karma is derived from the Sanskrit kri, to do. All action is karma. Technically, this word also means the effects of actions. In connection with metaphysics, it sometimes means the effects of which our past actions were the causes. But in karma yoga, we have simply to do with the word karma as meaning work. The goal of mankind is knowledge. That is the one idea placed before us by Eastern philosophy. Pleasure is not the goal of man, but knowledge. Pleasure and happiness come to an end. It is a mistake to suppose that pleasure is the goal. The cause of all the miseries we have in the world is that men foolishly think pleasure to be the ideal to strive for. After a time, man finds that it is not happiness, but knowledge towards which he is going, and that both pleasure and pain are great teachers, and that he learns as much from evil as from good. As pleasure and pain pass before his soul, they leave upon it different pictures, and the result of these combined impressions is what is called man's character. If you take the character of any man, it is really but the aggregate of tendencies, the sum total of the bent of his mind. You will find that misery and happiness are equal factors in the formation of that character. Good and evil have an equal share in moulding character, and in some instances, misery is a greater teacher than happiness. In studying the great characters the world has produced, I dare say, in the vast majority of cases, it would be found that it was misery that taught more than happiness. It was poverty that taught more than wealth. It was blows that brought out their inner fire more than praise. Now this knowledge again is inherent in man. No knowledge comes from outside. It is all inside. What we say a man knows should, in strict psychological language, be what he discovers or unveils. What a man learns is really what he discovers by taking the cover of his own soul, which is a mine of infinite knowledge. We say Newton discovered gravitation. Was it sitting anywhere in a corner waiting for him? It was in his own mind. The time came and he found it out. All knowledge that the world has ever received comes from the mind. The infinite library of the universe is in your own mind. The external world is simply the suggestion the occasion which sets you to study your own mind. But the object of your study is always your own mind. The falling of an apple gave the suggestion to Newton. He studied his own mind. He rearranged all the previous links of thought in his mind and discovered a new link among them, 
which we call the law of gravitation. It was not in the apple, nor in anything in the centre of the earth. All knowledge, therefore, secular or spiritual, is in the human mind. In many cases it is not discovered, but remains covered, and when the covering is being slowly taken off, we say we are learning and the advance of knowledge is made by the advance of this process of uncovering. The man from whom this veil is being lifted is the more knowing man. The man upon whom it lies thick is ignorant, and the man from whom it is entirely gone is all-knowing, omniscient. There have been omniscient men, and I believe there will be yet and that there will be myriads of them in the cycles to come. Like fire in a piece of flint, knowledge exists in the mind. Suggestion is the friction which brings it out. So with all our feelings and actions, our tears and our smiles, our joys and our griefs, our weeping and our laughter, our curses and our blessings, our praises and our blames, Every one of these we may find, if we calmly study our own selves, to have been brought out from within ourselves by so many blows. The result is what we are. All these blows taken together are called karma, work, action. Every mental and physical blow that is given to the soul, by which, as it were, fire is struck from it and by which its own power and knowledge are discovered is karma this word being used in its widest sense thus we are all doing karma all the time I am talking to you that is karma you are listening that is karma we breathe that is karma we walk karma Everything we do, physical or mental, is karma, and it leaves its marks on us. There are certain works which are, as it were, the aggregate, the sum total of a large number of smaller works. If we stand near the seashore and hear the waves dashing against the shingle, we think it is such a great noise and yet we know that one wave is really composed of millions and millions of minute waves. Each one of these is making a noise, and yet we do not catch it. It is only when they become the big aggregate that we hear. Similarly, every pulsation of the heart is work. Certain kinds of work we feel, and they become tangible to us. They are at the same time the aggregate of a number of small works. If you really want to judge the character of a man, look not at his great performances. Every fool may become a hero at one time or another. Watch a man do his most common actions. Those are indeed the things which will tell you the real character of a great man. 
great occasions rouse even the lowest of human beings to some kind of greatness. But he alone is the really great man, whose character is great always, the same wherever he be. Karma, in its effect on character, is the most tremendous power that man has to deal with. Man is, as it were, a centre, and is attracting all the powers of the universe towards himself, and in this centre is fusing them all, and again sending them off in a big current. Such a centre is the real man, the almighty, the omniscient, and he draws the whole universe towards him. Good and bad, misery and happiness, all are running towards him and clinging round him, and out of them he fashions the mighty stream of tendency called character and throws it outwards. As he has the power of drawing in anything, so has he the power of throwing it out. All the actions that we see in the world, all the movements in human society, all the works that we have around us, are simply the display of thought, the manifestation of the will of man. Machines or instruments, cities, ships or men of war, all these are simply the manifestation of the will of man, and this will is caused by character, and character is manufactured by karma. As is karma, so is the manifestation of the will. The men of mighty will the world has produced have all been tremendous workers, gigantic souls with wills powerful enough to overturn worlds, wills they got by persistent work through ages and ages. Such a gigantic will as that of a Buddha or a Jesus, could not be obtained in one life, for we know who their fathers were. It is not known that their fathers ever spoke a word for the good of mankind. Millions and millions of carpenters like Joseph had gone. Millions are still living. Millions and millions of petty kings like Buddha's father had been in the world. If it was only a case of hereditary transmission... How do you account for this petty prince, who was not perhaps obeyed by his own servants, producing this son, whom half a world worships? How do you explain the gulf between the carpenter and his son, whom millions of human beings worship as God? It cannot be solved by the theory of heredity. The gigantic will which Buddha and Jesus threw over the world Whence did it come? Whence came this accumulation of power? It must have been there through ages and ages, continually growing bigger and bigger, until it burst on society in a Buddha or a Jesus, even rolling down to the present day. All this is determined by karma, work. No one can get anything unless he earns it. This is an eternal law. We may sometimes think it is not so, but in the long run we become convinced of it. A man may struggle all his life for riches. He may cheat thousands, 
but he finds at last that he did not deserve to become rich and his life becomes a trouble and a nuisance to him. We may go on accumulating things for our physical enjoyment but only what we earn is really ours. A fool may buy all the books in the world and they will be in his library but he will be able to read only those that he deserves to and this deserving is produced by karma. Our karma determines what we deserve and what we can assimilate. We are responsible for what we are and whatever we wish ourselves to be we have the power to make ourselves. If what we are now has been the result of our own past actions it certainly follows that whatever we wish to be in the future can be produced by our present actions. So we have to know how to act. You will say, what is the use of learning how to work? Everyone works in some way or other in this world. But there is such a thing as frittering away our energies. With regard to karma yoga, the Gita says, that it is doing work with cleverness and as a science. By knowing how to work, one can obtain the greatest results. You must remember that all work is simply to bring out the power of the mind which is already there, to wake up the soul. The power is inside every man, so is knowledge. The different works are like blows to bring them out to cause these giants to wake up. Man works with various motives. There cannot be work without motive. Some people want to get fame, and they work for fame. Others want money, and they work for money. Others want to have power, and they work for power. Others want to get to heaven, and they work for the same. Others want to leave a name when they die, as they do in China, where no man gets a title until he is dead. And that is a better way after all than with us. When a man does something very good there, they give a title of nobility to his father who is dead or to his grandfather. Some people work for that. Some of the followers of certain Mohammedan sects work all their lives to have big tombs built for them when they die. I know sects among whom, as soon as a child is born, a tomb is prepared for it. That is among them the most important work a man has to do. And the bigger and the finer the tomb the better off the man is supposed to be. Others work as a penance, do all sorts of wicked things, then erect a temple or give something to the priests to buy them off and obtain from them a passport to heaven. They think that this kind of beneficence will clear them and that they will go scot-free in spite of their sinfulness. Such are some of the various motives for work. Work for work's sake. There are some 
who are really the salt of the earth in every country, and who work for work's sake, who do not care for name or fame or even to go to heaven. They work just because good will come of it. There are others who do good to the poor and help mankind from still higher motives, because they believe in doing good and love good. The motive for name and fame seldom brings immediate results as a rule. They come to us when we're old and have almost done with life. If a man works without any selfish motive in view, does he not gain anything? Yes, he gains the highest. Unselfishness is more paying, only people have not the patience to practice it. It is more paying from the point of view of health also. Love, truth and unselfishness are not merely moral figures of speech, but they form our highest ideal, because in them lies such a manifestation of power. In the first place, a man who can work for five days, or even for five minutes, without any selfish motive whatever, without thinking of future, of heaven, of punishment, or anything of the kind, has in him the capacity to become a powerful moral giant. It is hard to do it, but in the heart of our hearts we know its value, and the good it brings. It is the greatest manifestation of power, this tremendous restraint. Self-restraint is a manifestation of greater power than all outgoing action. A carriage with four horses may rush down a hill unrestrained, or the coachman may curb the horses. Which is the greater manifestation of power, to let them go or to hold them? A cannonball flying through the air goes a long distance and falls, Another is cut short in its flight by striking against a wall, and the impact generates intense heat. All outgoing energy following a selfish motive is frittered away. It will not cause power to return to you. But if restrained, it will result in development of power. This self-control will tend to produce a mighty will, a character which makes a Christ or a Buddha. Foolish men do not know this secret. They nevertheless want to rule mankind. Even a fool may rule the whole world if he works and waits. Let him wait a few years, restrain that foolish idea of governing, and when that idea is wholly gone, he will be a power in the world. The majority of us cannot see beyond a few years, just as some animals cannot see beyond a few steps. Just a little narrow circle, that is our world. We have not the patience to look beyond, and thus become immoral and wicked. This is our weakness, our powerlessness. Even the lowest forms of work are not to be despised, let the man who knows no better work for selfish ends, for name and fame. But everyone should always try to get towards higher and higher motives and to understand them. 
To work we have the right, but not the fruits thereof. Leave the fruits alone. Why care for results? If you wish to help a man, never think what that man's attitude should be towards you. If you want to do a great or a good work, do not trouble to think about what the result will be. There arises a difficult question in this ideal of work. Intense activity is necessary. We must always work. We cannot live a minute without work. What then becomes of rest? Here is one side of the life struggle, work, in which we are whirled rapidly round. And here is the other, that of the calm retiring renunciation. Everything is peaceful around. There is very little of noise and show, only nature with her animals and flowers and mountains. Neither of them is a perfect picture. A man used to solitude, if brought in contact with the surging whirlpool of the world, will be crushed by it, just as the fish that lives in the deep sea water, as soon as it is brought to the surface, breaks into pieces deprived of the weight of the water on it that had kept it together. Can a man who has been used to the turmoil and rush of life live at ease if he comes to a quiet place? He suffers and perchance may lose his mind. The ideal man is he who in the midst of the greatest silence and solitude finds the intensest activity and in the midst of the intensest activity finds the silence and solitude of the desert. He has learned the secret of restraint. He has controlled himself. He goes through the streets of a big city with all its traffic, and his mind is as calm as if he were in a cave where not a sound could reach him, and he is intensely working all the time. That is the ideal of karma yoga, and if you have attained to that, you have really learned the secret of work. But we have to begin from the beginning, to take up the works as they come to us, and slowly make ourselves more unselfish every day. We must do the work, and find out the motive power that prompts us, and almost without exception, in the first years, we shall find that our motives are always selfish. But gradually, this selfishness will melt by persistence, till at last will come the time when we shall be able to do really unselfish work. We may all hope that some day or other, as we struggle through the paths of life, there will come a time when we shall become perfectly unselfish, and the moment we attain to that, all our powers will be concentrated, and the knowledge which is ours will be manifest. 